This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Well, a little uh, rainy, a little cloudy, a little cool. Don't mind that. And certainly, with folks out east having to deal with what they've had to deal with lately, would not complain. Thanks for being with us here on Kelly and Company. The best to everyone and that extra, hey, we're behind you as much as we can do uh, for the folks uh, in eastern Canada that uh, that are dealing with uh, a lot more than anyone needs to have to deal with. Well, Ramya, we settled back for another day on the program looking at the, the have and this week with the truth and reconciliation being mm. foremost in, in a lot of our minds and, and hopefully those of us who may not have... Uh, to at least sit back and learn a little, experience a little come Friday. Yeah, the conversations have been getting, I'd say, you know, we've we've become in tuned, or at least I have, to um, understand the, the progress, right? So compared to last year or compared to the year before, understanding what the focus is, um, feel like this year around. Uh, and I think that this is an independent journey for a lot of us, but there are still so many messages to be heard, so many voices to be heard and taken in. So um, absolutely, Kels, we we pay attention and we keep top of mind. Well, and spending that bit of time, some of our lives to learn, to want to learn, and that journey you mentioned, yeah, independent journey of, of growth in the way that you want to and the knowledge that you can, uh, that you're interested in, in learning about anyone's culture to me is great. And also reminding ourselves there's lots of people out there who would love to share mm-hmm. and love to teach us. Let's see what's coming up today here on Kelly and Company. Nutritionist Julia Crantis, she's going to cover off gut health and informs us about the difference between probiotics and prebiotics. Nice. The National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, here's a conversation, and the Royal Canadian Mint have unveiled a uh, unique and deeply symbolic keepsake, and we're going to learn more about that. On our book club gathering, which we do once a month here on the program, we review Restugush, The Long Run of the Wild River. That's by Philip Lee. And we're going to have the recommender of the book here today, Greg David, when he joins us later on in Hour 2 for the book club. So I mentioned uh, our East Coast and what folks have gone through. Well, folks in the Florida area about to go through a lot as Ian bears down on them. Uh, The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, as a matter of fact, are evacuating Tampa as uh, Hurricane Ian, after uh, being in Cuba, heads for that Gulf Coast of Florida. ESPN's Dan Graciano has more on the team's plan for the week ahead. They're going to leave Tampa. They're going to practice in Miami at the Dolphins training facility this week. The Dolphins have a road Thursday night game in Cincinnati, so they'll be able to clear out and let the Buccaneers uh, take over and work there. Um, the Buccaneers players will be able to bring their, their fam- players and staff will be able to bring their families with them, get them out of harm's way, because the forecasts are uh, unfortunately very dire for Tampa and the Tampa Bay area. 
we've heard so much about this as this unfolds uh, from the mayor in Tampa and uh, how catastrophic this storm is expected to, to be. And again, as we heard so much with our uh, neighbors out eastern Canada way, the storm of a lifetime. And we just are hearing that rum yet way too often. Yeah, I know. It, it seems like it kills. And, you know, there's the teeny little things that we talk about when it comes to climate and weather, like, oh, you know, it's colder today. It's hotter today. I don't know. I don't know. But then we think about um, how much is actually going on out there. And even just the people who are monitoring and taking note, what does this mean this year compared to last year and the year before um, and and geographically? And, and there's definitely a lot going on that we will... I'm sure, is soon find out about. And I hope less and less of us are saying, well, I don't know what I can do. We we can right. all do our part. We remember, folks, we've said it enough times on the show, a little bit at a time, every little thing helps, that's for sure. Uh, the Buccaneers are scheduled to play against Kansas City um, on on uh, Sunday, and that game is at 8.20 at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. Oh, by the way, uh, I had 10 picks correct this past weekend. So quite frankly, I was crying over nothing, but speaking over crying over nothing, students in Michigan could soon be facing a new reality. No texting or social media for the entire school day if lawmakers pass a new bill banning phones in class. Chanel Pitts has a sixth grader in Detroit. I'm not for the bill. She says it's vital for her daughter to have a phone because of safety. Michigan Representative Gary Eisen says he drafted the bill after speaking to teachers who told him kids are too distracted and use phones in class to bully each other. The Detroit Area Teachers Union says a complete cell phone ban is not realistic. This bill is coming a little late because cell phones have been in classrooms for years now. Rhiannon Alley, ABC News, New York. We talked about this on a roundtable. Um, not really a big fan of the banning, but also understand the problem. Uh, and, and thinking of things like can't they jam to some extent the cell phones, but you're still then saying, well, what then? why if you're going to jam them if you had that ability? Um, you, you know, Rumi, we've seen internet services that schools have that keep you from being able to do certain things and they set it up that way. I don't know what the solution here is because I don't like this ban for those who need those phones. Yeah, I think the focus can honestly be on a different uh, place here because you're. I think it's easy to say, yeah, we're just going to ban phones, okay? Well, it might seem like the easy thing to do, but it's actually going to be very difficult. So many uh, of us take notes on phones. We have emergencies. We coordinate things. like, And, and I don't really understand, as the person in the clip says, why so late and why so hard? You know, it's not necessarily about punishing people and saying, don't bring your phones. There are other ways to engage uh, in the conversation if the fact is that people aren't paying attention, you know? Yeah, we always get so wanting to abuse the, or not abuse, excuse me, punish the abusers. Yeah. And yeah. and that kind of gets frustrating and it, it definitely gets old. So anxious to see if they get away with passing this or if somebody comes up with some other ideas. I want to slip this one in on you folks. Betty White is still bringing in the big bucks. An auction of comedy icon Betty White's stuff over the weekend smashed expectations. I don't believe it. 
it. It's true. Julian's auction says the event brought in more than $4 million, almost seven times the pre-auction estimate of six hundred grand, And every item up for grabs was sold. This is incredible news. The priciest, a director's chair from White's hit sitcom The Golden Girls, which sold for over $76,000. Signed scripts of the pilot and series finale sold for over fifty thousand, and White's wedding ring from her marriage to Alan Ludden sold for over twenty-five grand. White died late last year, just days before her hundredth birthday. Jason Athenson, ABC News, Hollywood. Hopefully, wonderful causes benefit from that uh, as she would want that to be. It amazes me whenever they say, "Oh, six hundred thousand is what we think the limit will be," and they they blow past three million, four million. Yeah, I know. It's so fantastic. And just hearing her voice feels so nostalgic to me. And I haven't even watched Golden Girls, but I'm saying that people uh, are showing love, I think, in many ways, including, you know, going after uh, all the auction items. Oh, for sure. It's really wonderful. Well, folks, a little bit of information for you as we kick off Kelly and Company. We've got a lot more ahead on the program. Coming up next... The late Queen Elizabeth Corgis were well-known members of that household. Dr. Danielle Johnkind shares the inside scoop of the Royal Corgis up next on Kelly and Company. In Canada, check out Kelly and Company right from your TV. Listen on channel 555 for SaskTel subscribers. And Shaw Cable, channel 825. Visit ami.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. Kelly McDonald here with Rumya Muthan. Happy Tuesday, folks. So, Kels, we know with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, we lost a lot. But what we really want to talk about right now is her love for pets, and we lost that. So let's bring on Dr. Danielle Jonkind for more of this. The human-animal bond plays such an important role in people's lives, and as a veterinarian, it's my privilege to help keep those bonds strong and healthy. I'm Dr. Danielle Jonkind, and welcome to Ask a Veterinarian. The late queen really had a passion that many of us can relate to, actually. She loved her pets, and her corgis were very well-known members of her household. So maybe we can argue that they were an iconic feature of her personal life that had many or very little to do with her uh, being queen. So what do we know about the corgi breed is the question here. Um, For me, not much, but we want to know about the queen's corgis and you Dr. Daniel Johnkind, have done all the research and you've brought the goods to the table. So what can you tell us about the corgi breed to begin with? (laughs) Well, actually, there are um, two related but distinct types of corgis. Mm -hmm. Um, There are the Pembroke Welsh corgis and the Cardigan Welsh corgis. And Queen Elizabeth was apparently noted for her affection for the Pembroke uh, breed, which have somewhat pointier ears and shorter tails than the cardigans do. And I was actually able to find some information on the history of the breed um, on the American Kennel Club website. And according to them, in the medieval era, um, monarchs all over the globe were actively trying to recruit talented artisans to set up shop in their kingdoms, because if they could entice these people to go there, you know, that gave them access to buying goods that could, you know, go toward an ostentatious display of their wealth, which we all know the monarch's really good at that. 
Um, but the monarchy recruited a community of weavers from what is now northern Belgium to set up shop in Wales. And when those people relocated, they brought the dogs they used to herd their cattle and their sheep with them. And those dogs are reportedly the ancestors of the modern-day corgi. And it comes as a surprise to many people, myself included, that corgis are originally a herding breed. And some even compete in herding trials right up there with the likes of other herding breeds like border collies. Um, from a veterinary standpoint, you know, um, corgis usually top out somewhere around 30 pounds if they're not overweight. Uh, they have short little legs and long backs, similar to dachshunds. And, you know, their hair is what I would describe as kind of like a mid-length. They're a little longer and fluffier than the truly short-haired dogs like chihuahuas, but definitely not as fluffy as some of the smaller breeds like miniature poodles. Um, and, you know, all dog breeds usually have some sort of predisposition toward different diseases. Um, corgis can get some eye diseases and hip problems, but, um, you know, with their long backs, they're a little bit more at risk for disc disease as well. Um, in my personal experience, the few corgis that I do see, um, you know, have a tendency toward obesity. So, you know, you kind of got to watch that for health problems, but, you know, they, uh, they seem to be relatively healthy little guys overall. So how did Queen Elizabeth come to love the breed? Well, you know, there's tons of information out there about Queen Elizabeth's history with her dogs. And most of what I was able to find out comes from articles posted by the British Broadcasting Corporation or the BBC. So according to them, her love affair with the breed began in 1933 when she was just a child. And she'd gone to um, visit some friends of the family with her family and they had a corgi. And of course, like children everywhere, after meeting their corgi, she announced, I want one. <laughs> So we're not so different, so, the Queen and I. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> I read that and I was like, yeah. <laughs> I've I recall the same conversations from my own children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But soon after, her family um, adopted a puppy from a breeder who had a large pedigree name, but um, who they ended up calling Dookie. And the BBC reported that Dookie was something of a furry little tyrant who allegedly bit lots of visitors, <laughs> but that didn't stop the family from adopting more corgis who seemed to be at least a little better tempered. Uh -huh. um, 11 years later, um, a, a Queen Elizabeth started a lifelong friendship with a corgi named Susan, and the BBC reports that they were very, like, inseparable. And I guess Susan lived till she was 15, and she sort of became the matriarch at the head of the Queen's Corkies. Um, she was the ancestor of 14 generations of royal Corkies. So her descendants were the Corkies we see in all the photos and news reports about Queen Elizabeth and her dogs. And I thought that was really cool. Oh my, that is really fascinating. She She went on to make corgis of her own so what was it like to be a royal corgi this part is sounds like it would be fascinating <laughs> honestly i was like so impressed reading this it it reportedly was a pretty cushy job to be I a canine friend <laughs> so i mean her dogs did not live in a kennel they lived with her in her apartments at the palace in buckingham palace they had a room of their own there um, each one reportedly had its own pillow-filled wicker basket to sleep in. Um, wherever Queen Elizabeth went, so did her dogs. And she reportedly filled a stocking for each of them at Christmas time. Oh. According to the BBC, she even walked them every day herself until she was no longer physically able to do that. 
All of their meals were prepared in the royal kitchens by chefs. And she apparently never sold any of her puppies either. She either kept them herself or she gave them to friends or family. And, you know, one of the more interesting pieces of information I came across but didn't previously know is that not all of her corgis were purebred. In the 1970s, the Queen's sister, Princess Margaret, was visiting and there was a clandestine meeting between her dachshund Pipkin and a corgi named Tiny. And the resulting litter of puppies were so enchanting to the royals that they dubbed them Dorgies. And the corgi dachshund crossbreeds have been included in the Queen's dog pack ever since. Wow. <laughs> wow. You want to talk about living so nicely. Well, I wonder how much at, at when it when it started pushback she got from, you know, the advisors are you sure you want to do that? Have them live right in the in the apartment? <laughs> I, I I wonder how much of that happened. Um and yet, what about the family? Other members of that royal family, did they sh- do they share Queen Elizabeth's love of the corgis? Again, according to the BBC, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, Prince Philip, the Queen's late husband, was occasionally noted to grumble about them <laughs> and about how many there were. Uh, Princess Diana even reportedly, reportedly described them once as a moving carpet. <laughs> Prince Charles, who is now King Charles, apparently owns Labs and Jack Russell Terriers. And interestingly, but maybe not surprisingly, the public became fans of the breed when the Queen's children were young. And while public interest in the breed kind of waned over time, it surged a bit again when the Netflix series The Crown was aired. And, you know, and I was kind of like, oh, my goodness, of course it did. Yeah, no, I was I was trying to think back to all the scenes, especially in the beginning, where there were dogs and if it was made a, a, a big fuss about them. Um, but yeah, you know, there's always haters, right? So what's yeah. going to happen to the Queen's dogs now that she's passed away? Well, a- according to the BBC again, um, Queen Elizabeth gave up breeding her dogs years ago. So her pets had dwindled to one dorgie, a cocker spaniel, and two corkies who were presents from her son in 2021. Um, so I guess Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson have announced they will care for the two corgis that they gave her. Um, it hasn't yet been announced wh- who will take the other two dogs, so I'm not sure about them. Hmm. Well, Danielle, I had said something about hearing when they were in the course media talking about everything, uh, there being a hundred horses there too. So I have to ask, did Queen Elizabeth have a love for other animals as well? Well, you are right. Of course, the other animal that Queen Elizabeth was known for her love of was horses. Uh, She was apparently given her first pony by her grandfather, King George V, Mm. and she was an accomplished horseback rider. Uh, Believe it or not, but Queen Elizabeth apparently continued riding horses into her 90s, which is really something when you think about it. And she was also interested in raising, breeding and racing horses and got involved in the racing horse industry in the UK. Some of her racehorses apparently had hugely successful wins at the track over the years. And she was also known for helping to preserve some rare breeds of horses through breeding programs. Um, And those were, I think, Highland Ponies, Fell Ponies, and Cleveland Bays. Uh, Those Cleveland Bays are used to pull carriages and for riding. And having said that, of course, the the ceremonial horses we often see used at those formal and wedding processions by the British Royals actually aren't Cleveland, Cleveland Bays. They're a different breed called Windsor Grays. But you see them always, and the what it's nice when you hear the influence that obviously the queen uh, would have, mm-hmm. and putting it to that kind of 
support and care and and taking on that responsibility because what other advocate could could one have that's a has that pull or at least people's ear to listen well and especially for something like horses like horses are very expensive to keep and you know and to breed and to do all of that stuff right so I mean, really, when you think about it, you know, it would take a a patron of of some means in order to do that. So, you know, it's kind of um, neat that, you know, she would think to do that and and to uh, to help preserve some of these rare breeds, especially. Well, I'm marveled purely by just the amount of stuff she was into and and how much she really kept her uh, self busy. It's, It's fantastic that she was riding into her 90s. So why bring And dedication. This? Oh, like yeah. Like the dedication she would have to, with the busy schedule and everything to, and making the demand mm-hmm. that, no, they're going to be here and I'll have as many corgis as yeah. I want and these are the horses <laughs> and what I feel. Like this is, this well, is my life love, too. But she took on lots of responsibility. Yes. Through all that. Um, why bring this to us today, Danielle? Do you think that this is important, the connection that Queen Elizabeth had to animals? Well, you know, of course, there's always controversy over the monarchy with people on all sides of the debate over royals having an opinion. But, you know, regardless of all that, I think what really struck me, you know, reading about Queen Elizabeth and her pets was how we tend to forget that people who are in the public eye are human, just like the rest Mm. of us. And, you know, it was very humanizing to read that Queen Elizabeth bothered to fill a Christmas stocking for each of her dogs every year, you know, and that they lived with her in her private apartments, not in a kennel. I mean, you know, I just always assumed that with that many dogs, they would live in a kennel. What did I know? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just goes to show you, you know, that that human animal bond is universal. You know, it, it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we do for a living. You know, anyone who loves an animal understands how important and how wonderful that bond could be. And, you know, to me, that was, that was really the take-home message about, you know, her and, and her pets. I thought that was amazing. I love the thing about bonds is a lot of them just happen. It's it's totally by accident and you never know, you know, a person could say, yeah, you know what, I would never really want to have two dogs or, or whatever. And all of a sudden they've got a dozen, you know what I mean? In the right circumstances, <laughs> if they have that. Mm-hmm. I get that with cats, you know, people that say, I don't like cats, I will never have a cat, blah, blah, blah. And then they live with a cat for whatever reason, one falls into their life, yep. which cats have a habit of doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have never once in my life actually looked for a cat as a pet. They just find me when they need a home. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and they they really are surprised at how much, you know, fun that pets can be, you know, that they, they really do bring an element of, um, you know, this love and this bond and this companionship to your life that, you know, if you haven't had that before, it, it surprises some people. Yeah. And the the challenges too, you know, different things that we highlight on these segments about what happens to a pet when uh, its primary caregiver is gone or, you know, what happens financially, all these different things. Mm-hmm. We're talking royals, but we're still talking about the same things, right? What's happening to her dogs now, etc. Uh, this is Amazing. Thank you so much for bringing this to us. And next week, we're covering uh, something a little more, um, I'd say, makes me a little bit more nervous pet poisoning. So you'll keep us informed <laughs> about that. A big switch. But, yeah. you know, we do have to cover some vet I stuff know. on the vet site. <laughs> some serious. Stuff. I have to work sometimes. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Okay. 
Dr. Danielle Jonkai joining us for Ask a Veterinarian. Wow, always bringing really interesting stuff, no matter which way you look at it, folks. A lot of information, a lot of, uh, of important things just to share with us. Coming up next, nutritionist Julia Caranches covers gut health and informs us about the difference between probiotics and uh, prebiotics in a moment. Thinking of the terminology um, that uh, Princess Diana used, a, a moving carpet <laughs> I know. for the corgis. <laughs> and I, I guess that could be taken as, what, are, are you saying there's so many? Or, or, They're you just know, that furry? Oh, yeah. maybe they, they, they shed a lot? I don't or know. maybe they move together and all just kind of come rushing to say hello? Maybe they follow your feet all the time. So you Sweep you away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Great segment. Welcome back to the program. It's Kelly and Company, Romeo Muth and Kelly McDonald. Wherever you're listening in, we thank you for being with us, whether it's for the live show or we have a couple of repeats, 5 p.m. Eastern. Or excuse me. Correct that. 10 p.m. Eastern time. There we go again, living in the past. Ah, yeah. Uh, and 6 a.m. in the morning Eastern time. Now it's uh, time, as we do every other Tuesday, to talk a little nutrition. So let's bring on Julia Karanchis. I love the world of nutrition. Join me, Julia Karanchis, as we talk about everything from food and nutrition to living a vibrant lifestyle. Our nutritionist brings us a wonderful topic today to talk about, something to, to help us get informed and learn a lot about. We're chatting today about prebiotics versus probiotics. Hey, Julia. Hi. Yes, today is one of my favorite topics. I love chatting about gut health and colon health um, and everything to do with the GI tract. I just think it's so important and so fascinating. And there's so many things that we can do on a daily basis to help ourselves that are really not that hard. Um, So today we're going to talk about gut health and the difference between a probiotic and a prebiotic and why they're both important. So even though, right, because they are both important. And even though they sound similar and they both have to do with gut health, they are different and have different functions in the body. Well, we talked about probiotics before I remember on the show. So can we do a little recap about them? What is the deal with the probiotic? Yeah, we've talked about them many times. Um, We talked about them in our functional food segment, the immune system and digestion segments. Anytime I touch on those topics, probiotics seem to come up because they're pretty vital to those functions. So they do a lot for our bodies, but in terms of gut health, they notably decrease gas and bloating and promote bowel regularity. And that one I think is pretty important because I think a lot of people can understand, if not relate to not always being regular and having proper bowel movements. And so, um, you know, when I say the word they, I'm referring to bacteria. So probiotics are bacteria. They're not one type of bacteria. There are many, many types of bacteria, but all the bacteria have like a similar, I don't even want to say a similar function, but a a positive function. I would say a positive function. Okay. So because... Yeah. So there are good and bad bacteria. So when we say probiotic, we're talking specifically about the good bacteria. Um, And then your diet, like 
can affect this because we can have an overgrowth of bad bacteria, which can cause problems such as gas and bloating. And so having good bacteria is really important to balance that out. And good bacteria can be found in foods such as fermented foods, which we've talked about, um, like sauerkraut and kombucha. Your favorite. Mm -hmm. Everybody's favorite. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Not really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But now we all know what I'm talking about. And uh, and then there's more common foods, right? Like yogurt um, and kefir, if you're familiar with kefir, which is kind of like a a yogurt drink. I'm loving kefir lately. Um, yeah, so easy to throw into everything. It, oh my gosh, so it's and, so easy, and it's yeah. probably would that. Well, I don't want to say is that the better way to do it, or or is yogurt the better? It, all of it, no matter what, is going to have that effect on you if you have a yogurt a day or two or whatever. Yeah, um, it, it's all going to have that kind of the the effects of uh, that you were mentioning before, the bloating and so on, and, and, yeah, and it, uh, regularity. Yeah, they're all going to give you some of those probiotics, some of those good bacteria. Okay. Is is there, other than a supplement, and, I, and again, you may tell me that's not necessarily the end-all, be-all answer either. Is there something we always think, what is the thing that's going to give me the best success? Well, a supplement will be definitely stronger than a lot of foods. Um, so if you take it, and you can take a supplement very easily in a pill or powder form. And the nice thing about the supplements is that you can pinpoint the, the, the strains of bacteria that you're, you're choosing to consume. So there's certain, so all the, although all the good bacteria has a positive effect on the GI tract, there are certain strands of bacteria that colonize better and have a better effect in the large intestine versus the small, for example. Um, and so when you choose a supplement, you can choose ones that have different concentrations based on, you know, where you're, concern is where your symptom is that you would like, you know, like alleviated. Okay. So it's, it is kind of the easiest way to do it. And then food is great there to maintain and just make sure that you're, you know, daily maintenance. Right. Right. Okay. So let's then move to the prebiotic. How is this different? Right. Okay. So it's, it's super different, but super helpful. So a prebiotic is not a bacteria. It's a fiber and it's what feeds the probiotic. So it is food for the good bacteria. Uh, This typically comes from carbs, like carbohydrate foods that give us an indigestible fiber, which the bacteria eat. So this is another way to maintain a healthy gut is eat these foods that are prebiotic because they will help to feed the good bacteria that's already in, in your GI tract. Okay. So what are some examples? <laughs> right. What do, what do we eat? Well, generally speaking, fruits, vegetables, and legumes. So specific examples would be beans, oats, asparagus, bananas, berries are great, mm. um, and onions. So these are all great examples of prebiotic okay. foods. Yeah. Right. These are good. And so, you know, eating these types of foods daily will help to maintain proper a proper balance of good bacteria in the gut, which will therefore keep the bad bacteria in check. And, and it's this balance of the good and the bad that's the goal. I mean, nobody's going to eradicate bad bacteria. That's just not physiologically how we're built. We always have them both. It's, a, it's just a balance that we want to maintain. When they're out of balance, it's a condition called dysbiosis. And when you have an imbalanced microflora 
in your gut. So it's the balance is the goal and eating prebiotic foods helps to maintain that, that healthy balance. It's cool seeing um, certain things on this list for prebiotics because, I mean, we talk about fiber all the time with fruits and veggies and kind of toss all of it in there, right? All the fruits, all the veggies. But um, this seems to be a lot more specific in terms of the kinds of vegetables, for example. Well, and it's funny because when you say oats and then uh, onion, for example. Right. Yeah. Like, hmm. Yes, exactly. And it's really interesting to see how specific you can get with a food group, right? I mean, vegetables sure. is a group, but you can really dive in and get super specific um, with some of the benefits of some of these vegetables. And, you know, I used to work with a naturopathic doctor and, and we would talk about colon health and gut health all the time. And she was um, talking about, you know, if you're constipated or if you've got the reverse problem, eat a banana. And she would always say, just eat a banana, eat a banana. And I realized, you know, oh, it's a prebiotic, which means it's, you know, going to help your good bacteria. And when you have a healthy, good bacteria, you have colon regularity, be it like regardless of what your problem is. Right. So I, it just makes so much sense now. But when I, at the time, I just thought, oh, okay, a banana. But I get, mm-hmm. you know, I, I see how the, that whole mechanism. But she was like, yeah, it's a great remedy if you have, and I don't know what the science is, you know, full disclosure, I don't know what the science is, but that was just always what she said. And I just found it interesting specifically, right? It wasn't eat an apple. It was eat, eat, a, banana. Banana. eat a banana. Yeah. yeah. And how about the carbs part of it? Like Kelly, you mentioned the oats. Um, we're not talking like rice and flour. No. Yeah. Cause it's a type of fiber that you're like an indigestible fiber and you're going to find those, you know, in a lot of different carbs. I mean, they're not specific to the ones that I've just mentioned. Sure. It's just, those are good common sources that are, you know, easy to consume. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not all carbs, but all carbs will help with fiber. But again, it's the complex fiber. Are you getting? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just want to drive back to the probiotic for one second in the, in the supplements, because again, you, we list off a bunch of things that are great to utilize yogurt and, and so on. Um, and that would help you if you wanted to take a supplement, decide which one was best for your system. I'm assuming when you go in, look, talk to someone or or read up on yeah. it, it would let you know basically where the targeting with the com- combo of, of bacteria is, what, what that, what's the outcome would be or in that sense, what the goal is. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, your first option is ask questions to whomever's working at the shop you've gone into. Right. Um, some of the probiotic supplements in their name have what they're helpful for, like, you know, colon, ultimate colon or whatnot kind of thing. Um, but you know, you can definitely ask questions and if you Google, I mean, it's not information that's hard to To find, to locate. Yeah. So, you know, there's this group of bacteria that we know is better for the colon. Um, there's this group of bacteria that we know are great for, traveler's diarrhea for fungus. If you, if the bad bacteria has overgrown and caused a problem, we know there's strains that are great for that. And we know that there's great, there's strains that are great for women because women have this whole other section of their body that has the good bacteria in it as well. Um, and so, and this information, it's not that hard to, to locate once, you know, once you, once you hit in Google, what you're looking for. Um, but I definitely would ask, hopefully the people that are working at the store, are able to to have that base knowledge where they could just tell you very quickly 
which one might be better for you based on the symptoms that you're having. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you're definitely going to feel a big relief if, if it's something like constipation, Yeah, if you, you know, take a probiotic specific to, to colon health, like the large intestine, you're, you're probably going to feel something, some relief quickly, which well, is the, nice. And the big thing is, you know, you probably can tell what's going on, right? You're, yeah. you're not feeling good. And it's just a matter of knowing what to eat to counteract that. Like you're saying yeah. with the banana example is so interesting. Yeah. Um, what are foods that are bad for gut bacteria? Right. Cause so, you know, we let's know, it's good guess. to know, it's good to know, <laughs> well, let's take a guess. It's good to know what to eat, but it's also good to know what not to eat because you, you want to replenish good stuff, but you don't want to feed bad stuff. It's mm. a, right. It's like a race. It's who's going to get there first. Um, <laughs> high, high sugar containing foods, um, are not great. And I'm not talking about fruit. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't eat your apple and your banana. I'm talking about that added sugar, the corn syrup, the glucose, those sorts oh, of things. Corn syrup. Oh, those corn Kelly, syrup Kelly solids. Directly yeah. with that no, one. that does. But that's <laughs> been that was like back as a kid. That stuff hasn't yeah. been around. It's a, maybe its effects have still last on. Who knows? But <laughs> but now we, we can we can find it in in foods yeah, as an ingredient, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my but, God, we can find sugar but, but all the people who are anti-corn syrup probably are indulging in it, not knowing they are until they... Hey, is what maple the syrup okay for good food? It's such a, <laughs> that's such a good point, Kelly. I feel, I, I, yeah, people indulge in lots of things and, you know, they don't well, want to know the, the details. Yeah, I, I always laugh at the, the haters on it because I think, well, I wonder what the heck you're eating that has it. Um, let's summarize, though. One yeah. is bacteria and one is food for the bacteria and we need them both. Correct? Correct. Yeah. Probiotics are live bacteria and prebiotics are plant fibers that feed the live bacteria. You need them both. They're both important. There's that gold Good. star. I just put it there next to the corn <laughs> syrup bottle. <laughs> <laughs> As usual, Julia, thank you very much. Really interesting. And I think um, one of the key things we, we always like to get into is that gut health and reminding ourselves. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Julia Caranchis, you can join her every couple of weeks here on the program on Tuesdays for our nutrition chat opposite our wellness uh, conversations with Francis Wong. Coming up next, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the Royal Canadian Mint have unveiled a deeply symbolic keepsake. We learn more in two minutes. Remember when you have some time, folks, and maybe best when you do have that time, you can gather things together and settle back and listen to maybe multiple episodes of Kelly and Company. How? Via the Kelly and Company podcast. Simply subscribe using your favorite podcast platform and check out the show. Look, do a search for Kelly and Company AMI-audio. While you're in there, you'll see a lot of other podcasts. Some of them I'll run down for you very shortly, as a matter of fact. But I digress, folks. Remember, you can listen to the show in segment form, or you can listen to the complete Kelly & Company podcast experience where we even toss on an audio vanity card. That's the Kelly & Company podcast. Subscribe now. While you're in there, if you don't mind, give us a rating and review, will you? Kelly McDonald here with Ramya Muthan. 
Let's talk about some fun and great initiatives leading up to the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. So the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the Royal Canadian Mint have unveiled a deeply symbolic keepsake. And we want to know exactly what this keepsake is and what the significance is behind it. So Alex Reeves, Senior Manager of Public Affairs at Royal Canadian Mint, joins us now for all the details. Alex, thank you for making some time for Kelly and Company. Well, thanks for inviting me. Really looking forward to uh, discussing exactly what this keepsake is. So can we start off with a bit of a description, you know, for Kelly and I who are uh, um, very excited to know what it looks like. What is what is it? For sure. Uh, I'll start with what it isn't, actually. Okay. Uh, that might help. Uh, <laughs> it's not a coin. So uh, let's right. make, uh, there's um, there's no uh, there's no effigy of the queen on one side and a design on the other or a denomination or anything like that. It's really uh, what we would technically call a medallion. Um, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's meant to be uh, commemorative, but it doesn't work as a coin or currency. Uh, so we have uh, complete liberty to design both sides with uh, the imagery that we choose. And uh, uh, this keepsake is, is definitely rich in imagery on, on both sides. Uh, if I can start. Yeah, we'd love a description of the imagery. Um, just one more follow-up is how big is the medallion? Uh, it's about the same width as a $2 circulation coin. Okay. So it's it's quite it's quite sizable. It's bigger than like an ordinary pin, let's say. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's a nice size. And it's uh, it's prominent and shows well, uh, and it's wearable. Also, the uh, uh, it has a steel core, so it's magnetic, and we sell it with a magnet uh, so that you can you can uh, you can stick it on uh, your clothing or a cap or something like that, and uh, and show whichever side you prefer. So it's. Uh, it's wearable and versatile. Okay. So, so there are two sides to this thing. Um, I'll start with the simplest one, um, and it's um, it's actually uh, the colored side of the coin. Uh, there is a uh, central image um, uh, of a kind of an array of orange hands uh, uh, organized like the rays of of the sun, essentially, and inside. Is the um, is the uh, the everlasting flame logo of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation? Uh, so the hands symbolize the uh, the sun and its life giving energy. Uh, on top of that image in the center is inscribed "Every Child Matters, Chaque Enfant Compte," so bilingual. And those legends and the design are, are surrounded by uh, by footprints of. Uh, uh, of children and adults, and uh, it represents uh, it represents the uh, uh, people walking with their ancestors. So mm-hmm. the an- ancestral connection is is very important, and the continuum, the continuity of of the generations. So that is one side, and on the other, we have a collaboration between three different artists, and it's the first time we've done this. Give. Uh, giving the, the canvas of, uh, of uh, one side of a coin to three different artists to, uh, uh, to create a, a combined design. And the purpose of that was to make sure that 
the identity of First Nations, uh, the Inuit, and the Métis Nation were represented equally on the coin. Uh, all, all of those uh, communities have been affected by the, the residential day and boarding school experience. Uh, they live with that legacy still, and it's an opportunity for them an opportunity for them to to illustrate uh, in their own voice uh, what uh, what what their communities represent in in this context. Wow. I can wow. go into the description of each one of these. It's a bit lengthy, but I can do it if you'd like. Well, before we get to the the uh, specifics on this, I do want to ask you the you know, the significant, because it seems like there's so much that went into it, the imagery, um, the sentiment, the collaboration, the messaging, uh, you know, down to not just the the visuals, but down to like everyone who was involved in putting this together. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Just why it's important that it was done this way through these collaborations? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think the simple answer uh, to that is is um, is to act out of respect uh, for the communities, um, and we uh, we had had a desire to do something uh, that would benefit um, uh, Indigenous communities in the context of uh, of of the uh, of the sort of the orange. Shirt Day, Every Child Matters, uh, and Truth and Reconciliation as a whole. How can we, you know, how could the Mint be involved in that? And, and we do have, you know, a, a unique role by by producing coins and uh, and things like medals and medallions uh, that no one else uh, has the ability to do in Canada, certainly right. not within government. And um, uh, so we decided to leverage that and um, and create something that could be sold uh, at retail. It's, it's very reasonably priced at nine ninety five, and uh, all the net proceeds from the sale of each keepsake goes to um, uh, the Nami uh, Kinemuk uh, Community Foundation uh, of the uh, National Center for Truth and Reconciliation to support uh, commemoration projects. Uh, and knowledge sharing and, and uh, preserving the memory of the experience. So, so we we had this idea, but there there was no way that we were going to to set out and say this is how we're going to do it and and set off in our own direction without consulting the yeah, very for sure. communities that are re- represented here. Uh, it's it's not our story; it's their story. Yeah, and so how did you guys do was, that to decide on with the artists and and those conversations, Alex? Yeah, well, we we called up the uh, the National Center for for Truth and Reconciliation and uh, and told them what we wanted to do, and uh, we also said we wanted to hear from the survivors themselves and to hear what their experiences uh, were like and how they would like to see. Uh, the subject uh, depicted uh, and communicated. So, so we worked in, in close collaboration with the National Center uh, uh, for uh, for Truth and Reconciliation, and and what's called the sur- their Survivors Circle. And um, uh, it was a really eye-opening journey for us. Uh, very moving. 
um, and and extremely uh, revealing. And uh, it allowed us to to just hear what they had to say. We we're just there to listen, and and they appreciated that. And uh, we're, we're very glad that we took the correct approach in hindsight. <laughs> that was always our intent. Uh, and then we worked with them to select some artists, uh, some of which we'd worked with before. Uh, Jason Sikowak, who, uh, who uh, took care of the Inuit component of the design, had done a, a coin for us a few years ago. And, uh, and they came up with some, some very, uh, very moving uh, evocative designs on the coin, but you know we worked with uh, with those stakeholders and artists not just to to create a medallion, but to tell the story. Uh, uh, the The medallion is is packaged in a folder uh, that talks about uh, the the residential school experience. Uh, that uh, points even uh, people to uh, the residential school's crisis hotline uh, on the back of it. Um, so all of the content that you find either in the packaging or on the Mint's website was all done in close collaboration with the National uh, Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the, and the Survivor's Circle. So we walked this path together, uh, every inch of it, and uh, and we're uh, we're very pleased that we were able to to uh, to come out with. You know, to end up with a with a finished product within within a year, uh, we were we were prepared to work to their timetable, give them the time they needed to to work everything out and to uh, to share their uh, their feedback, and uh, we're we're thrilled that we're able to get uh, get this done uh, in in under one year, and and here we are just before National Truth and Reconciliation Day. With this uh, this beautiful keepsake that will that can you know Canadians can wear as a, a sign of support or inspire others to find out more oh, about wow. reconciliation the, the residential school experience. What an incredible medallion, Alex! How do we get our hands on it, please? Well, the Mint uh, is selling it directly uh, online and at its boutiques. Um, there is a handy URL uh, that is specific to this product. It's www.mint.ca slash capital T, capital R, and that will bring you directly to the uh, the product page. Uh, dealers, uh, coin dealers around the country will also uh, carry some, and uh, participating Canada Post outlets also uh, have, uh, have the keepsake. Oh, boy, that's great. Good luck, Alex, with it. And I love the, well, we love what you guys have done in, in talking to everyone and getting the viewpoint and expressing it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we appreciate the feedback. Thank you very much. Alex Reeves is the Senior Manager of Public Affairs at the Royal Canadian Mint, talking to us about the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation and the Royal Canadian Mint's symbolic keepsake. In the next hour on our parenting segment, Lucia Belafonte will lead a discussion with us around memories, experiences and suggestions on organization. And on our book club, we'll review Restigouche, the long run of the wild, uh, wild River, and we'll have Greg David, who recommended the book. Up next, though... Medicine Hat, Alberta, is moving to electronic bus fare in October. Community reporter Tony Feimark has all those details for us in two minutes. When you recognize sighted people just by their footsteps...
Welcome back. All about a new video podcast that we have this week for you. Raising Kindness, this is with Becky Zarr. Uh, she spoke to us about this when she was on the roundtable a few weeks back. This releases today. Becky and her son Bennett perform acts of kindness in such settings as shelters, community centers, and nursing homes in southern Saskatchewan. In the first episode, you'll hear about their volunteering experience at the CNIB Kids Camp. Also, Triple Vision, a season one final episode releases today as well. This time, the Triple Vision team engages in a roundtable conversation, and they're going to summarize the first season for you in that chat. Please subscribe to AMI Audio Podcast when you have a chance on uh, your favorite podcast platform. Time as we do on uh, Mondays and Tuesdays to check in with one of our committee reporters. We find out what things are happening in their regions and speak to them once a month on the show. Tony Freimark joins us with news from Medicine Hat, Alberta. Tony, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, and I gotta say, it's the end of September, and guess what, guys? Mm. Mm. I did my homework. <laughs> oh. Very what good. Remember uh, what it was? No, that's what I'm trying to rack my brain now. Oh, no. Oh, I was laughing. I thought you actually remembered. I was like, oh, no. Rumya remembers. We were supposed oh, to try it? something. Not pumpkin, wasn't it? Um, not, not, not to do with pumpkin. What uh, was it? I'm still having flashbacks of our green shake. Yeah, your shamrock, shamrock shakes. Shake. Yeah, but that was a long time ago. Yes. Wrong season. What's the date? Uh, uh, Tony, good. help us out. This is good memory. I tried the food trucks oh right, right. Yes. yes jinx we knew it was food <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a that's a that's a thing with it so did you like that well i didn't i wasn't that adventurous i tried taco in a bag through uh food frenzy and i gotta say like i thought i needed my ladder to to order my food you had, to, you had to use a ladder. Oh, it was so high up. It was so high up. up. Yeah. I've definitely done tippy toes. Oh, that, had that, that, did, that didn't even work. Yeah. That didn't, strangers like, picking up the me. food and handing it down to me. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here, I just fastened a napkin in the shape of a parachute. I'll just drop it down to you. But then how do you give your money? There's a slingshot right there, ma'am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, Tony. It sounds like a good time. Um Got a few things to talk to you a little bit about on the program. Let's start with Rebecca Stevens uh, winning Tell Us a Story. This is the Hive Story. Uh, what is this all about? So this is really neat. Like, I am so happy for her that she, all she did is she she did this demo video that she submitted back in July. And with that, she won a $10,000 grant that she's going to be producing and doing training on how to make videos and how to produce them and stuff. And she has called this series, it's going to be a documentary series, and she's called it Follow Us. And it's going to, in 2023, hopefully in the early 2023 it's going to air on the telesoptic tv and it's going to be based on um people living in and around medicine hat with varying disabilities and she's gonna she's gonna have a a series on, on that and i'm really looking forward to this because 
She's got the great attitude and she's very, very creative and just just can't wait to see how this is going to work out for her. She's not only somebody I know, but uh, we share a friendship ship as well. So that's amazing. A, yeah. Wow. And and it's called Follow Us. Um, and, and there's going to be stories of people's day to day activities around Medicine Hat, which is really nice that people get a look at Medicine Hat, get a look at the community we're talking about, the disability community. Uh, uh, so is she a pretty good storyteller? Is that that, you know, that's the key when you're applying here? And obviously they thought so. Yeah, and, like, she just has, like, the the great attitude for, like, a very upbeat attitude, very, like, she's just a sweet person, like, and she's very creative. She's just, she's going to do well. She's, it's going to be so cool, like, just can't wait. So this starts to happen in uh, mid-October with production beginning in November. Um, She hopes the uh, series will be about eight episodes, 20 minutes each, which I think that's plenty of time to tell the stories of the individuals, right? I think so, too. That'll be a lot of fun. I think it's great, and I can understand as a, as a friend, you know, having that uh, personal friendship, but also respecting her work. You guys must be pretty proud. We are. We really are, yeah. Tony, um, always a pleasure to talk transportation, especially when it comes to good news. So fingers crossed that this is good news. You guys are moving over to electronic bus fares in Medicine Hat. Yeah, I know. It seems I talk a lot about uh, special and regular transit lately, but you know what? This is going to be a plus, I'm sure. And yeah, that is like mentioned that uh, we're going to be moving to uh, MHT Go Passes, and that's going to be kind of like how Tim Horton's cards work. You're going to be able to load them up uh, on your phone or just buy a card and uh, you can swipe or tap it on. It's going to be available on both special and regular buses. And um, after the new year, there's going to be no like old paper day passes or um, monthly passes. You'll still be able to... uh, to use, you know, coins and stuff, because with people with uh, varying disabilities and stuff, it's kind of hard to get them on uh, get them on the new way of things and get them to learn how, how it is, right? So mm-hmm. um, it'll be cool. You know, you can track your tri- trips and whatnot on the app and pay on the app and whatnot. So it'll be good. Yeah, and this is mid-October, so just a couple of weeks, and then it'll start the implementation process, I guess. Um, I am curious, you know, what's going to be the follow-up, right? Are people going to find this to be accessible? Because it is available on the special transit as well, like you said. So, you know, the, the feedback will be interesting to follow in terms of uh, your own experience, Tony, on how the the tapping feels, whether you're getting on and off buses or the loading, like the reloading of the cards um, using your apps and machines, uh, that side of it, fingers crossed, but hopefully they did some research to make sure that it is accessible for everybody. Yeah, and I know they talked about that too when when we were they were telling us about that and it's it's definitely something to to see how it's going to go and whatnot as well in in that way so we'll be uh keeping our eyes and ears open if we uh need to give feedback and advice on that but yeah i'm sure they they have looked at it 
yeah. in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, um, with these kind of things, you know, and I've traveled to different cities in Canada and New York City and such where uh, this stuff is great for regular transit users. But what happens if you're just visiting for the day, visiting for two days, because it says um, in this you know, snippet that we have up on our blog as well. Uh, that paper passes are not going to be available any longer, right, after the full thing is implemented. So then does that mean no matter how many or how much you're using transit, you got to purchase one of these passes? Yeah, that's what it's seeming like, or just mm. use your coins. And what's going to happen, too, is they're going to just, once you use the once once you use the the 650 which is our our day pass like once you get on a second bus then uh they're gonna just say that's a day pass automatically too so yeah yeah well i mean we'll keep posted but uh, it is great that they're moving to you know something more um that they're able to to have as a more systematic change um hopefully keeping better track of things and helping out transit overall but uh, always we want to focus on the accessibility and make sure that part of it is settled Uh, but we'll keep posted you'll tell us how it goes i sure will yeah great so let's talk a little bit about aaron taylor a local video game creator um and he independently created his own very first short video game called everett isle which is an uh, exploration puzzle game so tell us a little bit about what you know about uh, about him and the the game well, basically, that's what I do know at this point, but I got really excited about it because in my childhood, I played a lot of the old Nintendo and Duck Hunt and whatnot, but uh, what I find cool is that he's a local local guy that created this, and you can, it's a dollar. You only pay a dollar on Steam to play this. Like, why not support the guy? And he's not into, like, he, he doesn't do the video games as, as a job or anything like that. It was just a goal that he wanted to do, and uh, here we are. So wow. I just think it's pretty neat. Yeah, I, I love when people come up with their idea of what they want to do. And again, some people might say, oh, okay, well, it's, is that an original idea? Is it not? It, you know what? It doesn't matter because somebody out there is going to like what you do. They're going to find it more comfortable here. You wake up on island, have no memory, and you want to, how the heck do I get off this island? So this sounds cool with the piecing together things as, as, uh, as you're able to do. And like you said, the $1 purchase on Steam. So really nice. Uh, congratulations to him. It'd be interesting to see how this goes, especially if it becomes viral. Tony, as usual, good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. Have a good week. Talk to you next month. Enjoy the next food truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're parachuting your food down. Tony Feimark joining us, and uh, we talk to our community reporters on Mondays and Tuesdays on the program. Remember, we'll put uh, all the stuff that Tony talked about up on the blog, ami.ca slash Co. On our parenting segment, Lutia Belafonte joins us, and we're going to have a discussion around memories, experiences, and suggestions on organization. Rumi and I will jump in there and have that conversation with her next on Kelly and Company.
going back to our talk with uh, Tony Freimark a moment ago, I think that's so neat when you look at um, a community like Medicine Hat or anywhere. Like when I say that, I don't mean oh the size or whatever. I know when artists are working on things here. It's so wonderful for people who live here or expats of, of town or city to be able to look back. And, oh, yeah. Hey, that that's my medicine hat. That's really cool. Those are people I know. It's always wonderful to watch something like the, the video uh, be created or know somebody's created a video game and they're from the area. I, I just I always wonder about the influence of that community. And it's so cool to hear hear people, our community reporters, talk about these things, Rum. Absolutely. Sorry, Mike off. Absolutely. And the thing is, you know, when if this were to get bigger and brighter, uh, the the future of this young man, it would be awesome to as the person of medicine had to say, hey, I knew that guy or we followed his story when, you know, and I paid a dollar for the game. (laughs) You guys have to pay three. You know, (laughs) it becomes (laughs) successful. Folks, let's check in with Lucia Belafonte for our parenting chat. Are you ready to learn, laugh, and maybe even cry a little? I'm Lucia Belafonte. Thanks for joining me on Kelly and Company, where both kids and parents can expect to grow in confidence and courage. So there's so many things, Lucia, we get into talking about. Well, you get into talking about, and we uh, <laughs> throw in what we have to say about it, but it, it causes you to go back, I, I, I know, as a host, I sit back and listen and think, and I remember that, or, hey, we tackled that this way, or, wow, I, I, I'm glad to know my parents made the right choice there. So today mm-hmm. on the program, could you tell us a little bit about the special segment you have planned for today? I am so excited because today you, uh, Kelly and Ramya, are actually going to do most of the talking, and I'll just ask a few questions and edge you on, um, but we're going to still continue our conversation on organization, but really from your point of view, and you can share your thoughts and experiences and suggestions with the audience. So I'm okay. so excited. Oh, we're excited too. Thank you for the uh, opportunity. So can you give us yeah. a quick recap on what we discussed in August, though, to talk about the importance of organization? Absolutely. So last month we did talk about um, how to begin to help your child become an organized person. Or if your child is older, no worries how to get them organized from whatever stage you're at as parent and child. And one of the things we also talked about was the importance of allowing children to control over their choices for organization, as well as the importance for everybody in the home and also at school, making certain that items remain consistently in the same location. Um, So that was last month. And now I get to ask the two of you to please share with us something that you felt worked really well with your own personal organization when you were younger at home. Mm. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Rum. If you have something, I yeah. have a couple of things that pop into mind, but go ahead. I'll organize that. Well, my most basic thing, Lucia, and this is, I was a uh, not the most organized person, still am not, but there are certain things that I find bring a lot of quality to the way that I feel about my home or, um, you know, I appreciate in other people's home when I am staying there or, you know, have to check out their places. And that is just to have a place where everything goes. So 
Um, whether it be in the kitchen and we're talking pots and pans and or uh, in the bedroom or in the washroom or closets, just whatever it is, I don't I, I appreciate when I can take something out and put something back. And um, mm. sometimes it's just simple, right? Simply, you know, this goes in front and this goes behind. And other times it might require a bit more care, um, a, a bit more tactic in terms of how you're organizing. Does it need more space? Can, are you dropping everything when you go reach for it, uh, et cetera. But that's the the most simple thing that I've learned. And I I feel that I've grown with myself um, in organizing that way as well. So I love it. Um, and that was one of the ones that I had on my list really uh, to go out. So I was fighting with, do I bring that one up? Or finishing things, start w- t- something and finish it. Have that goal to make that that priority once you start it so you don't forget. And I learned that at a, a very early age so that I wasn't hearing, who left this out here? Or something like that <laughs> when my parents found something I had started and hadn't completed, not to mention you have your mind set on what you're going to do, getting the task done after you've thought it up, get it finished so that you're not coming back to it later saying, now what was I going to do here? I learned that at a very you know early age as well as uh, the old put things back where you got them because accidents happen if you don't. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love both of those examples. And you know, Ramya, I hadn't even thought of what you mentioned when returning items but perhaps if something is in front of something else and then how that might be a little bit troublesome right knocking things down yes so absolutely the space for everything is just so important and that that makes me think of being um, an itinerant vision teacher in in that school how space for everything is important And one of the things I found really challenging was trying to get um, classmates to understand that chairs needed to be tucked in for safety, right, and and ease of travel for a student using a cane. So I was hoping that you would share maybe some thoughts about school stuff. Mm. And, you know, for me, it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been that kind of thing that, you know, when I was in school until I went to the blind school, uh, I didn't I didn't have a cane, but I kind of liked students to be aware as much as they could, whether it was grade one or two of my limit limitations. I always felt it was good and better to advocate. I couldn't get by. And and I shouldn't say that because I I had more vision then. I couldn't get by, oh, well, you know, I I don't need to share that with people. But definitely I could find my way around. I had an an incredible sense of direction um, and remembered places so easy that I know I fooled people and young kids who didn't understand. But that same thing went for the the teachers. So, um, yeah, I, Mm -hmm. I, I bumped things and fell over things. But I learned at a young age about utilizing what little bit of vision I had to to do what I could for getting around probably better than I utilized it for reading and stuff like that. Um, but definitely knowing to put things back, that was the thing I needed others to help out with. Yeah. And the way that I found most helpful for that, Kels, is, you know, because we know it's much more collaborative school at school, right? Like right now as an adult, um, I have my own space. I can do whatever I want with it. And and the, the he, 
more or less organized I am affects me directly, right? But when you're at school or living with others or in workplaces, too, are good examples. Um, mm-hmm. it's, some of these practices, just they just become second nature the more you actually practice them. And one of those things is being uh, verbal, you know, letting people know where you're putting something down or in school, it was kind of like, and here's the cubby on the far left corner where the coat rack is or whatever it was. Just the more verbal people were, especially teachers um, and you know, adults, the more that I felt we were picking up on that. Students were picking up on that. I was picking up on it. And um, it was just very helpful. And sometimes it was a... Things like we want to store these art projects in our desk until the next day. So make sure you gather up your crayons and whatever it be and put them in your desk so you remember that that's where it is tomorrow. And now, obviously, during those times, I didn't think this was personally meant for me, right? (laughs) Though I was the only person with low vision in my (laughs) class and sometimes in the school. But it was just... That kind of information I found helpful. So now that translates to as adults, somebody comes over to my house, they've used a a, um, a mug to drink out of, and then they say, Rumi, I've put the mug on the right side of your sink when you're washing dishes. Just remember that's where it is, right? So uh, the verbal um, instruction, reminders, uh, visualization of things, I always found to be helpful. I love that, those verbal cues, right? Yes. It, and it, it's interesting, Kelly, that you raised the fact that you yourself were verbal enough and um, to share with people what your needs were from a young age when you had them. But and I realize not everyone them. can do that, and most cannot. And you don't have to have a disability yes. or a special need in, in any capacity to communicate something. To be that way, that people often you don't want to be the center of attention. You don't want people feeling yeah. that you know you need something special for you to get by here, and what you or the teachers are. You, you, everybody has their own fears and concerns. So uh, I was always told, though, speak up, <laughs> yes. and I felt that if I didn't speak up, anything that didn't go right, or if someone said, "Well, I'm sorry, Kelly, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't know it was my fault," right. Yeah, that that's an interesting point, right? If you don't speak up, then people don't know. And, and then you almost, I don't know, do you feel that you feel even more responsible then? Yeah, and, and that's something... the thing that had to be tempered because you don't want a child going yeah. away feeling responsible. You don't want them feeling like everything's right, right. their fault because you're not everybody's yes. keeper. So that had to be tempered. And it, and it was. I was lucky that not just the teachers, yeah. not just the people I ran around with and, and friends I had or my parents made me feel it was like Ramya said a while ago, it's something everybody worked at and has to work at with you. It's collaborative. Yes. And and I think it's a lifelong skill. I, I, I mean, I know for, for myself, sure. right? And, and it sets you up I... to be able to do that because you forever have to advocate for yourself and you don't have to be, yeah. you have to do it in the right way because if you're obnoxious about it or ignorant, yeah. people are going to treat you with lack of respect. Absolutely. That's that's a great point. And even the verbal cues, like the verbal cues at school, you mentioned the teacher saying, okay, we're going to be doing this activity tomorrow, so make certain that you put your crayons back into your desk. You know, but to be honest with you, as, as a teacher, that would be something that I would want to do anyhow exactly. for the whole class, because you're reminding everyone of what what we're now doing in the present moment, and then 
what we're going to be doing and how to organize ourselves, right? Or how the kids Mm -hmm. can organize themselves. And so sometimes we think that we always have to be very specific or um, say instructions or directions or give cues in a different way than we would. But in that example, it's lovely because we realize we don't need to do that, right? It will work for everyone. And this specificity or like being really specific and mm-hmm. about where things are located um, is a great one for both at home and school. Like, please, you know, go to the cupboard on your far left side, um, top shelf in the middle of that shelf and get something. Right. So great examples. And that too, it tests, because this is a challenge as well as Mm -hmm. an amazing point, because sometimes you're like, where did I put that again? But if you, if you know, your uh, memory, exactly. And if you know that Mm -hmm. everything in your house, maybe it takes you a couple seconds to find it, has a spot for it um, and, you know, like things, then you know that you, you have a system. And it's a matter of being able to describe that system uh, or verbalize it to somebody else and vice versa, uh, that person to you. But it's nice to, because uh, I do recognize it as a challenge as well, Lucia, which mm-hmm. we can work on. Yes. Well, you know, but but the thing is, too, I, I, I like to think of it in terms of that challenge of, of of learning how to verbalize things and then also for the child learning how to listen to those instructions yes. and go. I often talk about, you know, learning um, intentionally, like intention, parents intentionally te- teaching their child something. And that's a perfect example. So you can do that with your child in a fun and relaxed way, sure. right? Put something somewhere and then give those verbal directions so that the, your child is learning, so that yeah. you're learning and practicing that skill from the time that you're young and then you become accustomed to it. And That's then it. also I think the family, right, learns how to give better verbal instructions or directions. Awesome, And Lucia. then they also learn. Sorry. Wonderful. We're out of time and you're right. Then they learn. Uh, we'll talk to you next month. Great stuff. Take care. Talk to you next month. Our parenting discussion always get into so much. We'll talk on the fourth Tuesday of the month. Up next, our book club gathering. Join us again in a couple of minutes. Remember, if you want to check out things at Accessible Media Inc., you can uh, like the Facebook page, folks. There's all sorts of great conversations, things going on out there. Check it out, if you would. That's the Accessible Media Inc. Facebook page. On Twitter, follow along at AMI-audio so you can see what's happening from segment to segment. Handle is at AMI-audio. Uh, Rumya can also be avail- found on Twitter at AllRams with a Z, and I'm at ami Kelly Mac. It's time for our book club gathering, so I'll hand things over to your host, Ramya Muthan. Thank you, gals. Yes, this is the Kelly and Company Book Club. We meet on the last Tuesday of the month, and it's our chance and yours and our recommenders to get into the books and authors that we uh, and narrators that we love or don't love. And today's book for discussion is Ristagouche, The Long Run of the Wild River by Philip Lee. And it was recommended to us by AMI communication specialist Greg David, who's here to join the panel. 
Hey, Greg, thanks for the recommendation. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. And for reading. We're so excited to talk about this. Um, So let's start with what this book is. It got a lot of accolades, I'd say. It was shortlisted for the New Brunswick Book Award uh, for nonfiction. It's also a CBC New Brunswick New Brunswick book list selection and it's being very well reviewed so why did you decide to pick it up first of all uh how long ago did you first read it and then recommend it to us yeah i i read this earlier this year and um my girlfriend and i are constantly well she's actually better at it than me she's constantly sending me emails or links through messenger um you know have you read this book have you read this book she's always on the lookout for great books mm. um not only for herself but other people and she knows um that i'm into um, reading about nature. Uh, as much as I love fiction, like Stephen King, have you w- read the new um, Stephen King book? Maybe we'll talk about that next time I come on. Yeah, I was going to um, say. When you make your uh, next I'm... recommendation. And and, yeah. and and I saw that when we got this book, I knew as soon as, I, like, I almost didn't have to ask from you who recommended this, because yeah, I new. knew this is your, what we talked about on Voices, what yes. you really like. The historical yeah, nonfiction. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so as much as I love fiction, I love nonfiction even more. I love documentaries. And like you said, Kelly, on Voices, geography. I talked about – Yeah, I talked about Canadian history and geography, and this is all about geography. This is about the 200-kilometer uh, Restigouche River that runs basically along uh, marking the border between uh, New Brunswick and Quebec. And particularly because I live in Quebec now and have been here for two years, right. um, I've just really kind of been fascinated with just this area. And so when she recommended this book to me, I jumped all over it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It. Yeah, and it's relatively new for you too, where your you know your lifestyle and um, your remote living, if you will. Yeah. Um, so I found that yeah, it, it totally throughout this book, I was thinking yeah, there's real direct reasons why I think Greg picked this book. But here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to um, describe the book to to people who haven't read it. I'm more picking things directly from the book that we can discuss um, because I love the writing a lot. So check out this passage. Mm-hmm. The remarkable thing about Atlantic salmon is that they rem- return to the river where they were hatched. How they navigate navigate their grand journeys from their home waters to the coastal waters of Greenland and back again to Spawn, sometimes repeating the trip two or three times, remains a mystery that has led to lots of scientific speculation about how they follow the Earth's magnetic fields and ocean currents and can recognize the chemical composition of water. Um, I find that this is like a bite out of the Discovery Channel, which was awesome. And there was so much like this throughout the book about the beavers and the dams and mm. uh, the birds and all. It was so fascinating. Reversing so, falls. Yeah, the water itself. So, Kelly, did you enjoy these bites about the Atlantic salmon and about er- other wildlife throughout the read? Oh, I love all that stuff. I, it's funny because people say, well, you're not really much of an animal person, but I love <laughs> wildlife and That's things like that. That's why the question was aimed at you. Well, and I'd never be out there dealing with these bears and stuff <laughs> like that that come along or anything like that. But, um, you know, when they talk about portaging over these great areas to get to other areas, when we talk about the strength of the river and you think, wow, those banks are so high because thousands of years of wearing down. Little tidbits about the fish, like you said, how the composition of the chemical in the water helps guide them to where they're going. That's just natural instinct. The groupings of fish, the idea of what they're doing, how high they're jumping out of the water, or just the multitude at different periods. The going back and forth and knowing what was done and and people who knew how to navigate the Mm -hmm. river, it's many arbitrary. I find 
that stuff absolutely fascinating. And that's like I said, when when the book was suggested, I, oh yeah, I know what, and I already knew. Okay, I know what kind of great things are going to be in here that I'll like. You know, it's interesting that you say that, like the people who knew how to navigate the river. And first in the kind of the introduction of the the whole book, I was thinking, oh, you know, Philip Lee, he seems like he's pro. He knows exactly what he's doing. But then throughout the book, it was oh. fun kind of seeing him fumble and, yeah. uh, you know, look to his companions and be like, help. You know, I nose dove into the Well, and over history, the, right, Greg, the people who, like, and we, we know from our, our history and geography, Greg, the voyageurs and, and mm-hmm. you know, all the business of the Hudson Bay Company. And you want to go on and on and on about these things. A fantastic, incredibly uh, gifted, talented, strong people who read the trees, read the sky, read the water, yes. re- knew where to go, and if they got into problems, could walk through snow up to your waist. Just, just phenomenal characters from uh, the 1600s right through to the to the to, you know present time. Yeah, uh, you know, aside from this being a travelogue and, and Philip writing about his own journey because he grew up in the area as a mm-hmm. child and was revisiting it as an adult and wanted to write about the river as he actually paddled it, it's it's a history lesson as well. And, you know, it, it traces the Europeans, the Mi'kmaq, uh, you know, who were there, of course, first and how they worked the land and, and used the river as, as not only travel but also mm-hmm. for food. So yeah. it's just a fascinating, you know, history lesson on the area too and, and, and how humans have interacted with the land in positive and negative ways. Yes. Yeah, very New Brunswick, very the Acadians. Just the history is just phenomenal. Well, the the human aspect of it, you know, how we basically screwed up everything um, yeah. was really just a lot to take in. And uh, here's a quote for a bit of a reality check on human interruption. If the river were 100 years old, it ran free from human interference for its first 99 years. <laughs> All the major disruptions in the water would have come at sur- uh, various times in the last year and the great acceleration of change during the past six months. So something like this, I will remember. You know, the 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 picture that it paints is so vivid to me. It's such an easy way to understand, oh, we screwed up and we did it in such a short amount of time and yet we think we're all that. But for you, Greg, um, what do you think of it being expressed this way to talk about how we've interrupted nature's course? Is it more impactful for you to hear this kind of description or were you impacted more by the full historical evidence, the nitty gritty, the details, the dates, the people, the the accounts of everything? I mean, I like both of it. I mean, both, um, you know, the stories after a while, it it got, you know, if I had any criticism, it was, okay, Philip, we get it. We're messing up this river because it was just <laughs> yeah. story upon story upon story, right? Um, you know, even you know, even having to ask permission to enter the river from um, some, land, some land being owned by the Irving Company. And if anybody knows anything about the Irvings, they, you know, I might be overstating a bit, a bit, but not by much. They really own the east coast of Canada through oil refineries, forestation, Mm -hmm. uh, paper mills, and things like that. So just the fact that he had to ask permission to enter the land that they owned, this company owned, just so that he could, you know, jump onto the river in in his canoe kind of told me the story. And and the Americans that came, you know, the rich Americans that came to fish uh, because Canada was trying to, you know, get some of those American dollars to come up. And so they, you know, they built these huge huge lodges for, uh, you know, lumber barons and rail barons to come up and spend time there and fish. And, And while pushing the 
indigenous people off of the river that they'd been using for thousands of years. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like the, the 99 years and, the, you know, the last year and particularly the last six months we've messed things up because I did feel guilty after a while reading right. about how we just continually been messing up this this watershed. Uh. He poured on the guilt for sure. Yeah, yeah. he really did. And uh, you know, with all guilt the, or fear, man. And and, and well, it, after yeah. every passage, or you know, he did a lot of summarizing of other articles and uh, mm. things, right? And after all that, I was like, oh no, and what's next? Can it get any worse? It was really bad. But of course, it's real, right? All of this yep. stuff happened, and it gives you a huge, a, a, a way sharper idea of this um, place, this river that's meant for so many different reasons. Um, there's a lot of philosophy and geography, literature, uh, spirituality. I particularly enjoyed learning about the Mi'kmaq community and uh, the language as well, mm-hmm. um, aside from the politics and stuff. But then again, there was also all this actual adventure happening, right? I loved the stories of him and the voyages and uh, all the different people they were going with, the food that they would take on. I'm like, wow. How do they pack all these things? Um, but that was really fun. So, Kels, are you this outdoorsy? No, I couldn't do all that. <laughs> I mean, when I was, I shouldn't say that. When I was younger, yeah, oh, yeah, I would get a kick out of it. The bugs would be the thing to bother me the most, right? But, you know, the idea Spilled of somebody who knew what they were doing. <laughs> It doesn't do that well. Don't don't buy into the book that much. Okay. Uh, you still need the bug gear or whatever in our spoiled world. But the idea of of, of getting uh, you know in the canoe and going portaging, I could leave that a little bit. But the one thing that I did want to say that it really is a sign as as things were discovered. Oh, we're doing this wrong. Oh, we're, we'll fix that. We're, oh, we did this wrong. Fix that. As as different people got involved, it really makes you stop. As you guys were talking about the ninety nine years, the last six months. You stop and think, well, hold on. If we keep messing up and we're gone because the climate change is likely to get us along with a bunch of species first, we're gone. How long will it take things to recover? Because Mm -hmm. Mother Earth will recover in its own way, in own time. It may be a long time, but it really makes you see when, when people stop doing something ridiculous, filling the rivers and oceans with plastics, for example, Mm-hmm. what what rebounding can happen? Will it ever be the same? No, but through history, I guess things change even mm-hmm. without us messing it all up. So I, I felt some of that in this book with as as the descriptions of what was done, what was kind of undone with the persistence that we're still going to be putting junk in the river and, and taking from it and not returning. But there were those moments of, hey, we know this is the right thing to do. Let's do it. And then after a while, you get bored of let's doing the right thing and start doing foolishness again. Sure. Like the the straightening of the rivers, that part was fascinating. Oh, yeah, very and how much. they'll always go back to their meandering ways and um, you doesn't know, matter powerful. what you do. That's exactly. it. Exactly, and like you said, it takes time, but it still goes back. How about you, Greg? I remember you saying you had to cut your own firewood now, and it uh, sounded a little <laughs> yeah. bit sassy. So. Are you this yeah. adventurous? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I think I could probably do a leg of it, like a short little bit of it just for a day to have some fun and maybe camp out at night and then, and then kind of shut it down and drive the rest of the way. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the days of being a cub and boy scout are far, far behind me. And I like the creature comforts like, you know, Kelly, I think does too. Um, but it is fun. I, I, you know, this is my way of, of experiencing it is through the, uh, eyes of other authors and, and I, and the way that Philip writes this, um, Philip Lee writes this is that I was able to picture that, that theater of the mind in my head the whole time. Mm, unique people 
and a unique river, right? Like I always yeah. find it so fascinating when you've got unique people, uh, such as the guides and stuff like that, yes. you know, who are, are just, wow, you just do that. Yeah, I went there. Yeah. I'll put this stuff here. I'll, I'll be back. What? You wait here. I'll run and put this stuff there uh, two miles away and come back and get you. What? And then we'll head out together. Like, you know, crazy stuff. And like you said, on the river itself, who is, of course, your number one main character? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there seems to be a lot of help um, putting this whole thing together, whether it be, you know, all his citations or just the actual human beings who assisted in making sure that trips happen and uh, that somebody was there for emergency. You know, people people seem to do a lot of uh favors is the word that i'm thinking of but mm-hmm. just interacting to to get the stuff done yeah yeah which is nice uh greg any last words on some kind of fresh lesson or something that you took away from this that you wanted to highlight um if people are still thinking maybe i'll read this book what, what was the reason that you would recommend it yeah i mean aside from the history lesson i you know the biggest takeaway for me is like you said the people that were that he interacted with along the way whether it was a you know a fellow guide or even his family his wife and daughter joined him for part of the trip right. along with some friends i mean that really breathed a lot of color into the story as well it could have been very very dry if it wasn't for the fact that he was actually on the river and experiencing this um through a new set of eyes as adult eyes um and with friends and and fellow guides so i think that that was the biggest takeaway is the human story aside from the history Agreed. Those are the parts that I really, really uh, I enjoyed. That that was mm-hmm. like the the relief from all the academia and the shame on us part of yeah. the part yep. of the story. Amazing, Greg. Thank you so much for the recommendations. I'm looking forward to talking Stephen King in the future with you. Going on. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Take this care. Um, we were talking about Restigouche, the uh, run of the Wild River by Philip Lee. And for next month, we're moving on to technology talk. So the book of choice is After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul by Trip Mickle. And this is recommended to us by Stephen Scott. Wow, big surprise. Well, of course, it's Stephen <laughs> in the title. Like it's, you know. Exactly. That's the only reason why. It's available in synth audio again. That's two months in a row that we've picked synth audio. But I think it'll suit the uh, genre well to listen in synth audio on CELA, the Center for Equitable Library Access. So I'll tell you a little bit about the book from the Walt Street's, burn, uh, Walt Street's Journal's Trip Mickle. The Dramatic Untold Story Inside Apple After the Passing of Steve Jobs by following his top lieutenants, uh, Johnny Ive, the chief design officer, and Tim Cook, the COO turned CEO, and how the fading of the former and the rise of the latter led to Apple losing its soul. Author Trip Mickle spoke with more than 200 current and former Apple executives, including Trump administration officials and fashion luminaries, while writing after Steve. His research shows the company's success came at a cost. Apple lost its innovative spirit and has not designed a new category of device in years. Ives' departure in 2019 marked a culmination in Apple's shift, he says, from a company of innovation to one of operational excellence, and the price is a company that has lost its soul. We're discussing this on the last Tuesday of the month, which is the 25th of October at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So join us then. add the fact that it really kills me when you hear about the recommendations, people honoring these books, such as the folks that you let off with, a CBC and so on from New Brunswick, and even when we stop and go over to CELA and the recommendations that are there, and people just love to share and say, hey, I read a good book. 
You should check it out. And at the moment you've read it or you are reading it, it's the greatest book on earth or the worst. Mm -hmm. There you go. We don't know if it's the worst or the greatest yet, though, right? (laughs) Until we read it. Well, yeah, but the person's perspective of who's reading it, them it might be. Uh Awesome stuff. Very good, folks. Uh, We will return in a moment. We'll take a look at what's uh, going on on our show tomorrow and preview now with Dave Brown, uh, their show beginning at 9 a.m. in the morning on AMI-tv. We'll be right back. I got another pair of headsets over there um, that, that when I plug in now to listen to the computer, folks, I... I can also hear our system. So when I really laugh hard, I'll hear myself echoing back to myself, <laughs> and I'll think, what the heck? Some idiot outside is making a lot of noise. That's amazing. <laughs> From your booth at Kelly McDonald, host of the program. Welcome back. Thank you for being with us. want to keep uh, you, you know, remembering some of the times you can check out the show in case you can't be here for the live show whenever you're listening in. Uh, uh, 10, I did it earlier in the show, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And also 6 a.m. in the morning Eastern Time. You can always check out the Kelly and Company podcast. Subscribe using your favorite podcatcher. But however you listen to the show, whether it's at ami.ca where you can listen to the live stream or through TuneIn, OOTunes, any of those apps that you can get down on your phone, we appreciate your time. Any particular segment, Ramya, you want to go back to, I I will say I really loved our, our book talk. Uh, the images in the book that are described and so on, uh, really first class. Absolutely. And it's so fun getting recommendations uh, anytime uh, but from Greg. He's got a lot to say and he's not afraid to, you know, tell us what he loved and didn't love about a book. So that was a great discussion. Uh, also, prebiotics and probiotics. What are they? Why are they important? How do we get them in our foods? And uh, how do we know we need them? This was what we discussed on our nutrition segment with Julia Caranches. It was very informative. Uh, wonderful medallion, folks, that the Mint has released, too. Uh, we had a really wonderful talk. Got some nice description on it and how you can get your hands on this. Uh, and, of course, it, it being a really wonderful commemorative uh, item as we look at uh, rec- uh, our, in our week of uh, reconciliation, of course, for Truth and Reconciliation, and this uh, from the Mint, just wonderful in the process of, of getting it uh, put together and the advisement. Really interesting story. Paul Daniel has a story for us. He'll tell us a little bit about what's coming up tomorrow on Now with Dave Brown over on AMI-tv. Good evening, sir. Hey, Kelly. On tomorrow's show, we'll speak to Caitlin Kersler, one of the people behind a device that recently won a national award. Uh, for for innovation, and uh, it, the device is called the Taco Tool, a device that's designed for people with Parkinson's to use in the kitchen. And just the name alone sounds great, Taco mm-hmm. Tool. <laughs> for yes. sure, absolutely. It's shaped, it's shaped like a taco. That's why it's fine. Ah. We'll also speak to one of our newest additions to the now contributors team, environmental writer Arnold Kopecky. He'll offer his thoughts on what has been a devastating summer and fall for many places around the world dealing with environmental disasters in. Pakistan, parts of Africa, China, Europe, and of course, the hurricane aftermath in Atlanta, Canada. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Amy Manti, our community reporter from Vancouver, will tell us more about the Tightrope Impro Theater. It's not improv, impro, impro, no V there, which by the name alone, I think, indicates they do a lot of improv. Nice. Okay. Or you're a pro at tightroping. <laughs> Among other things. Yeah, you'd have to be. <laughs> I would be in lots of trouble. Uh, I hope you didn't mind that segue today. You were complaining about my segues yesterday, so I hope today's was a bit better. At least one in oh, four should be a, nice. 
getting better. It's getting better, Kelly. Mm. You're, you're always improving every day. Uh, work at it, Daniel. <laughs> That's what I get every day. It's just it's a work in progress. I love when people say that. It's a work. In, I'm getting better at it. It's a work in progress. As are we all. As are we. <laughs> Life or work. As long as he gives you one good one a week, Paul, I think. Yeah, be satisfied. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being too demanding. Yeah, no, your, 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 okay. your greed is a working process, process, right? Get out of here, man. <laughs> Talk to you tomorrow, pal. Take care, Kelly. Um, I really uh, love today, again, our, our variety, our, our guests on the show, but I'm going to have to get me that, uh, that medallion. Um, yes. Never been a real collector of things like that, but it. It speaks so much, and the work that was described for us that went into it, absolutely tremendous. I loved the descriptions. Thank you, Alex, for that. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think, what for us sells a lot of things. Let us know what's it look like, what's about. Talk to you tomorrow. Talk to you tomorrow. On In the Know on our Wednesday edition of Kelly and Company, Margaret Weldon shares tips for travel readiness and takes us through picking the right backpack for the journey. The University of Manitoba has announced their latest writer-in-residence. Jim Crisco is going to share more on that. Also, we have the Wednesday edition of Buzz with Bill with uh, producer Bill Shackleton. President and CEO of Fighting Blindness Canada, Doug Earl, he's going to share with us some important updates that are out there uh, for the access to Lexterna gene therapy here in Canada. Reporter Grant Hardy, he's going to be here with the latest health headlines since it's Wednesday. And uh, we'll flip through some quirky stories from around the globe as Grant returns later in the show to do that with us. Uh, That's on uh, What in the World when we get into that with him. So much to get into starting at 2 p.m. Eastern. I hope you'll hang back with us tomorrow, Wednesday edition of Kelly and Company. We'll talk to you then. Fedora's off to you, folks. Something I haven't had a chance to talk about, we had Becky Zar on uh, promoting the podcast that is dropping this week and the fun things that she gets to do with this podcast as well as her past podcast, The Blind Reality. One of the things that I really took away from talking to Becky is the therapy part of it. And again, she mentioned feeling kind of selfish that she had this platform in which to speak, to share, and also help herself. And I had to stop and think, it's a very honest look, the guilt part of it, I can understand feeling, am I doing this for me or for others? Or, And then realizing it's a combination of both. And there, at some point you get to that, draw that conclusion that that's okay. That's really good. And that sincerity, because you're on the journey with the people you're speaking to out there and that one or two or 12 individuals, that it even hits deeper. Because they're having a journey that your journey is helping them deal with. And I think that that is one of the most wonderful things that YouTube, uh, TikTok, uh, doing podcasts have allowed people to do. And no matter what, no matter how, if the right person hears what you're saying, learns of your experience, there's somebody out there in your vast audience or listenership that stops and says that, they're speaking to me. They're talking to me and they know what I mean and what I'm going through. And I think that that ability, 
that privilege to be able to share your story and your payment is you get to work through your own stuff. Maybe not feel so alone as people reach out to you and certainly recognize you're helping someone else not feel so alone. Man, that's powerful. It's powerful in an individual way and yet for all of us. Because you're educating those of us who may not be there yet. You're prepping some of us who might be there at some point with whatever you've dealt with or people who can look back and say, yeah, that was me. That's what I did. Or you know what? Maybe that would have helped me handle that better. There are so many positives to this that I think that little bit of payment, if you stop and say, man, I'm kind of doing this for me. That's a little selfish. You know what? Be selfish. Because while you're being selfish, if you want to classify it as that, I don't. You're sure as heck helping me and I'm sure many others in one way or another. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.